each other? Why do you think we're going to? I don't know. How would I know? Because I already know an awful lot of people, and until one of them dies, I couldn't possibly meet anyone else. Well, if anyone goes on the critical list, let me know. As you can see, she was in serious trouble. But she still found time to enjoy herself. Mrs. Lampert, any morning now, you could wake up dead. Of course, she never had as much fun as her husband. Now, he knew how to relax. You see, it all began when he got off the train. Now, there's a relaxed husband. Police probably think I killed him. Instant divorce, you mean? From then on, her life was one round of enjoyment. Entertainment. <coughs> Enchantment? <coughs> what are you doing in here? I'm having a nervous breakdown. But her life wasn't always that gay. There were times when she was in dire jeopardy. Hasn't it occurred to you that I'm having a tough time keeping my hands off you? Oh, you should see your face. What's the matter with it? It's lovely. When we played our charade, we were like children posing, playing a game. Ah! Waterproof? Well. You're Charles Voss's wife. Now that he's dead, you're their only lead. Mr. Bartholomew, if you're trying to frighten me, you're doing a first-rate job. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we place every movie up against the Jaws scale to see where it lands. I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined by a returning guest, Mr. Blaine Dowler. Welcome aboard, Blaine. Well, thanks for having me back, Paul. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you're able to make it. Uh, we've, we've been bouncing, much like last time when we did the general, we've been bouncing some movie ideas around. And you, again, kind of did me a favor. You suggested that one, and you've suggested this one. This one has been on my to-watch list probably for about 30 years now. And I've never sat down and watched it. And so you finally gave me the incentive to actually do that. And uh, i got to say, you know, I'm pretty happy that you did. Uh, I'm not going to give away my, my overall review just yet. But, it, you know, it was, it was a worthwhile experience. I'll go as far as saying that. Yeah, it, it's early days, but I don't think it'll be long before people can will be able to say, "Well, it's not Jaws 4. Yeah, oh, yeah, I did, I did, yeah. That's that's as much as I'll give away at this point. It is not a Jaws 4 movie. Um, yeah, this the movie we're here to talk about today is 1963's movie Charade, and I have to tell you, for the wrong reasons, this movie had a stigma for me. 
and that was the fact that it's in the public domain. And I always wrongly took that as meaning, eh, it's a crap movie nobody cared about, and that's why it fell into the public domain. Uh, doing a little bit of research before we got, fo- got went forward today, uh, apparently the reason it's in the public domain is back in 1963 when this movie came out, they failed some improper paperwork, or they filed, excuse me, they failed to file a proper paperwork, uh, and that's what led to their copyright being denied. It, it is a technical little issue like that. It, the, the, actually, the issue was surprisingly Maurice Binder. Um, you, as you said, a lot of public domain films, public domain doesn't have a good reputation in film because really films fall into public domain in one of three ways. One is that they are relatively old, like, you know, prior to 1923 kind of old, in which case, you know, filmmaking was still going through the growing pains. So some of them are just dated. A lot of them are silent, that sort of thing. Uh, another reason that they fall into the public domain is that the company that made them went bankrupt and can't defend the copyright. And a lot of times they go bankrupt because they don't know how to make good movies. So the movies that fall into the public domain are terrible. And this is in that third category. Maurice Binder, who did phenomenal opening title sequences for things like the original James Bond movies, <laughs> stuff like that, did the opening credit sequence on this. And because of the way he did the typesetting, it says Universal Pictures 1964, but doesn't actually have the word copyright, the uh, legally recognized abbreviation of copyright, or the C in the circle there, mm-hmm. which under the very, very precise and picky copyright laws of 1963 meant they didn't actually declare a copyright on it. So it wasn't something of paperwork being filed it was all they had to do was put that C in a circle before the year in the opening credit sequence and it would have been under copyright <laughs> and and you know I, I do believe that it would have fared much better in the home video market and not that I mean let me let me take that back a little bit because I'm sure with it in the public domain and, and available out there for all of these uh, hack companies to make copies and put out there for you know very cheap prices I'm sure there's plenty of homes that had VHS copies of this over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the reputation of the movie, wrongly so, probably suffered for it because of people like me who would think less of it because it fell into the public domain. And I don't think that for movies like It's a Wonderful Life, which had been in the public domain for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, but something about a movie from 1963 being in the public domain, you know. I know that's not new by current standards. I mean, it's you know 55 years ago, uh, but it is relatively new as compared to most of the movies that you see in the public domain. It, it is, and I, I admit I had the same stigma with public domain. The reason I gave it a chance, I mean, partly because I actually enjoy some pretty bad movies. It won't be long before I'm on here suggesting a definite Jaws 4 in the public domain, I'm sure. Uh, and that's okay. I, I always say, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but uh, I think when I started the show, the initial thought was I'm going to do all geek favorite movies. Uh, but that was never my intention. Uh, my intention was to do all sorts of movies. I want movies that fall all over the scale. For the most part, we're going to do movies that are on the higher end of the scale because those are just more fun to do. Uh, 
because people are interested in talking about them. But I do think when we get the occasional clunker, that becomes fun too. And I always point to uh, when we did the last shark, which, by the way, is in the public yeah. domain. Yeah, I mean, all, all you need for a good podcast is a movie that can have an, an interesting conversation, whether it's an interesting success or an interesting failure, or you know, as long as it's still an interesting conversation. Uh, but to me, what what pushed me over the brink to give it a shot is that one of the things I've been doing every week for about 15 years now is writing a list of all the new releases that are coming out for home video. I mean, I started that when they were still 90% VHS and the other 10% were, were DVD. And I noticed that the Criterion Collection was releasing Charade on DVD or Blu-ray. And, you know, back in the DVD days, and I went, wait a minute. If this is getting the Criterion treatment, then there's something of interest here. I mean, yeah, they've done Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein and a couple Michael Bay movies, you know, uh, The Rock and Armageddon. So they're not universally great. I mean, The Rock and Armageddon, at least, I don't know. I think The Rock is Michael Bay's best film to date, as in that's the one I enjoy watching more than once. I'd say I prefer, prefer Armageddon over The Rock. Yeah, I'm, I can see that, but the... The guy who's actually taken astrophysics in me finds it really hard to just let go and enjoy Armageddon for reasons that a person with a more typical background in astrophysics, you know, won't flag on. But anyway, generally speaking, if, if the Criterion Collection has chosen to produce, to release a movie, it's almost always a great movie, but it will consistently be something that you know, there's a, a worthy conversation to have around that movie. So that's actually the uh, the Criterion Blu-ray is the one I watched for this. I had a pre-recorded DVD copy. I don't know. I don't recall who produced it. Though. Uh, but I think that's a good segue into just giving the plot of the movie. And this is interesting because it's listed as a romantic comedy slash mystery. I didn't really see too much in the way of romantic comedy. There were a couple of moments, but not... I, I You know, I thought that that's a somewhat questionable description of it. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to read off Wikipedia. I'm going to read, like, the first two-thirds of the plot. But I'm going to stop mm-hmm. it there because I don't want to give away the ending to it because I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this will not have seen it yet. And if they do want to watch it, I'd rather not just spoil the end for them. I, I would agree. I I came into this thinking, you know, I meant to discuss it with you before we start recording, but maybe with a summary, we just kind of do, like, the premise and maybe act one. So, Charade, 1963, stars Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, Walter Matthau, James Coburn, uh, Ned Glass, and George Kennedy. That's pretty much it. And just before I get to the plot... The name to me that jumps out there is Walter Matthau. He just doesn't seem to fit this kind of movie to me. But that's we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into this. Mm-hmm. So the plot is, while on a skiing holiday, Regina Reggie Lambert, played by Audrey Hepburn, tells her friend Sylvie, Dominique Mignol, that she has decided to divorce her husband Charles. She also meets a charming American stranger, Peter Joshua, played by Cary Grant. On her return to Paris, she finds her apartment stripped bare. A police inspector notifies her that Charles has been murdered while trying to leave Paris. 
Reggie is given her husband's travel bag containing a letter addressed to her, a ticket to Venezuela, passports in multiple names, and other items. At Charles's sparsely attended funeral, three odd characters show up to view the body. Reggie is summoned to meet CIA Administrator Hamilton Bartholomew, played by Walter Matthau, at the U.S. Embassy. She learns that the three men are Tex Panthalo, played by James Coburn, Herman Scobie, played by George Kennedy, and Leopold W. Gideon, played by Ned Glass, the survivors of a World War II OSS operation. Together with Charles and a fifth man, Carson Dial, they were to deliver $250,000 in gold to the French resistance, but instead they stole it for themselves. Dial was fatally wounded in a German ambush, and Charles double-crossed the others and took all the gold. While the three surviving men are now after the missing money, the U.S. government also wants it back. Bartholomew insists that Reggie has it, even if she does not know where it is. He tells her she is likely in great danger. You know what? I'm going to stop it at that point, because I think that gives us the premise. So I, I'm, I'm going exactly with what you said, and I'm just giving you pretty much the first act. Because I don't want to give anything away as to what happens. I don't want to take away any of the surprises of watching this. Uh, because I did find it entertaining, and frankly, I don't know... Uh, had you ever seen this before uh, recently, or is this something you had seen years ago? Um, first viewing was probably about 10 or 12 years ago. It was when uh, Criterion put it out on DVD following their... They first released it on Laserdisc in 98. And then the early 2000s, they put it out on DVD, and I picked that one up, and then I later upgraded to Blu-ray. Okay, because I, I had never seen this, and I had always been told... Oh, it's a very Hitchcock-like movie, and people know I enjoy Hitchcock movies, so, uh, you know, you would think it would be something I would naturally gravitate with, especially, you know, with Cary Grant, who's one of the quintessential Hitchcock leading men, uh, and Audrey Hepburn, who's just, you know, she's Audrey Hepburn. Uh, I think that that's, yeah. you know, that's good enough, right, just in and of itself. Uh, but, but for some reason, I had never really given it a shot. I do recall being at a friend's house once many years ago, probably 30 years ago, and him putting on the VHS tape, and we were going to sit down and watch this thing, and uh, whatever happened, it was like, eh, you know, I'm bored, let's change this, put something else on. And I have to say, watching this, that first act that, w that I just described, is slightly tedious. <laughs> it does, it, I didn't think it played all that well. I thought it was a little bit slow moving. Once you get past that first act, that's when it really pulled me in and I found it riveting. So I don't think I had ever given it a fair shot for the reasons we discussed earlier with the public domain stigma and then just the fact that the first act is a little bit of a slow moving process. Uh, that really made me sour on it a little too quickly because once I started to watch, once I watched the whole thing in the last week, I found it to be very entertaining, and I thought the payoff going back to that first act was well worth it. I'm curious, mm -hmm. you know, how how you perceived it, and along those lines. Yeah, it is. It is definitely something that rewards repeat viewing, because there is a mystery element. Um, I agree that we shouldn't spoil it. I will say though, it's a fair mystery. Everything you need to figure this out is presented to you as the viewer. You can solve this mystery if you pay sufficient attention. Uh, I would agree. And, yeah, and I, I agree that the first time through the, the 
that first act feels a little bit slow, but the second time through, that's because the the bits that seem like irrelevant filler are not irrelevant. And it's just kind of only on the second time through or in retrospect that their utility becomes more clear. So, okay, and that's that's I would say that's fair, and I, I at some point I will give this a second viewing, uh, yeah. so that I, I I probably will look more closely and see the things that I missed or thought were inconsequential. Yeah, it could, like I said, there there are a few of those in there, and some of it's just setting up characters. Like, I mean, this is it's not a perfect film, but it is enjoyable. One of the issues that they had right in production is that Cary Grant initially said that when he heard the concept, he was saying, yeah, I'm in. And then when they gave him the script and he found out that it was going to be Audrey Hepburn as the female lead, he was coming at them going, no, that's not going to work. He's old enough to be her father. I mean, she was in her mid-30s when they filmed this. He turned 59 while they were filming it. Right, yeah. And so they, he was ready to back out. And if he backed out, Hepburn was gone because she was only interested in doing it with Cary Grant. And with Grant Hepburn gone, Universal would have actually given this to uh, Warren Beatty. I can't believe I'm blanking on her name, but this would have been the first movie that paired Warren Beatty with his co-star from Bonnie and Clyde. Faye Dunaway. Yeah, that was the the combination that they were looking at. Now, I could see Warren Beatty in in the Cary Grant role. Uh, I don't think Warren Beatty is as charismatic an actor as Cary Grant was, but I can see him pulling it off fairly well. Faye Dunaway has a much rougher edge to her than Audrey Hepburn. And, yeah. not again, not to give away any plot points, but in this movie, Audrey Hepburn is very naive and quick to accept whatever she's told as being fact. And it's one of the things that just gets, gets interesting is as facts change, she just accepts it and moves on and, and kind of sweeps it under the rug and moves on to the next thing once she gets any sort of explanation for it. Uh, which yeah. is not totally believable, except it's entertaining and I kind of accept it and it's fine. I don't think Faye, Faye Dunaway could have pulled that off. No, and before they, they got Cary Grant back onto it, it was, Audrey Hepburn's character was a very different character. They rewrote Reggie to make her the aggressor in the romantic relationship because that was the only way they can get Cary Grant into it. Because he felt he didn't want to feel like a cradle robber. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, "Well, you know, how about if she's chasing him?" And that he found acceptable. So that's what it took to get him back on board. So Peter Stone did a complete rewrite on Reggie to make her the aggressor on the romantic side of the relationship, and. That kind of empowered her in a lot of ways. Like you said, it's, you know, when someone says, hey, this, you know, it's not what you you think, it's actually this. She just goes, okay, okay. And there are moments where she seems to say, I don't know what to believe. But then, yeah, after 20 or 30 seconds of pulling her hair out, she believes whatever she heard most recently. Yeah. And and like I said, it's, as you're watching it, it's very obvious that that's going on. and, And you do... Once there's been like say two or three plot twists, you know that you know a normal person is going to be saying to themselves, "Well, I can't believe anything anyone tells me," and yet she continues to just accept whatever comes her way. Uh, 
But again, something about her inherent Audrey Hepburnness makes it okay. Yeah, and that that is, I think, a, a big part of this. I don't believe this movie would have been the movie it was without Grant and Hepburn in the leads. And uh, like an interesting plot point in this is that it opens up with her saying she's going to divorce Charles basically because she's bored with life with him. Yeah. And that doesn't, I mean, she does present as a romantic in this movie, but she doesn't, like, she, she seems to be too innocent to have that as her perspective. If that makes sense. A, a little bit. I mean, she's she is naive when it comes to the, the crime and criminal element. She doesn't seem to be naive with the romantic element. So, like, you know, she knows what she wants from her marriage, and she's not getting it, so she's going to move on. When she does decide what she wants, she goes after it aggressively all the way through. It's just the world of crime is due to her. So she just doesn't know how to process it or prepare for it. Right. I, that's what I found when it comes to, you know, the like sort of the male female interactions. You know, there, she's got. Well, I don't, I don't know. Saying she's got experience might cast the wrong impression of her character. Right. She's she's not someone who would, you know, really chafe against the morals of the 1960s. Aside from the contingent that was just vehemently opposed to divorce. But she was right, saying, yeah, there, there's no love in this marriage. I want a marriage with love in it. So, you know, she was ready to move on. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I I can go with that as an explanation. for. Let's talk a little bit about the cast overall. And I guess we'll start with Cary Grant. Uh, there's something about him. Uh, and it's fun. I was thinking about him after I watched the movie. And I was trying to think of a contemporary similar actor to him. Uh, I think probably the most contemporary one I can come up with is George Clooney. Uh, but if we go back a little bit before he said things that made him the public enemy, the one who I think of is Mel Gibson. Yeah, he's and one I, of those sort of universally appealing yeah, performers. Yeah, like. Mike, but yeah, he's just universally appealing to everybody, and I think Cary Grant fits that mold. Uh, he yeah, did, he, and I would he, say that yeah, Mel Gibson in the sort of the Air America Maverick era, again before the Passion of the Christ and those comments, yeah, I would agree that he was he was comparable. Yeah, he, in, he was the one who I thought of being most similar, you know, back then or even in the early Lethal Weapon days. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Cary Grant also like. I've seen him in, uh, I guess my favorite movie he's in is North by Northwest. Uh, yeah. But, which, you know, again, we're going to the Hitchcock thing, or you can go to Notorious, which is another Hitchcock role, which I thought was excellent, to catch a thief. Uh, we, we can yeah. go on and on. Uh, but the, the other, I guess the other action movie that I'm a big fan of is Gunga Din. But he also played comedy very well. Uh, I think of Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, I think of... Uh, yeah. Bringing a baby, bringing which a baby. is the quintessential uh, screwball comedy. Uh, yeah, you know, this, this, he 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 was very versatile in what he could do as an actor, and I think that went a long yeah. way. Uh, he was; they were a great pair, especially. I mean, Cary Grant had a history with MGM. 
there's there's actually a few MGM influences on this Universal production. Um, so Cary Grant, he actually, you know, born in almost absolute poverty in Britain as Archibald Leach. And he made his way into the stage first, the London stage, and then came over to Broadway. But because he had been raised in that poverty, he was very careful with his money. So he took in a roommate to help pay the bills when he was on the Broadway stage. His roommate was a gay man. And someone in the tabloids in the late 1930s you know, basically outed Archibald Leach as being part of a homosexual relationship, misinterpreting the relationship between Cary Grant and his roommate. So, you know, at the time, that was a career killer. So Grant changed his name and figured, okay, you know, if he moves to L.A. and goes to movies, the Broadway stage thing isn't going to follow him. If he changes his name, that's not going to follow him. So that's when he took on the stage name of Cary Grant. And you know, came out to L.A. and be, became the movie star, he then decided to retire in the 1950s. And it was Hitchcock that pulled him out of retirement for To Catch a Thief, and he did a few more movies, you know, coming to this one before he he did retire permanently. Uh, Audrey Hepburn also had quite the history, because she was born and raised in Europe during World War II. And and she's got that that slight figure that Givenchy just loved. That's the the French designer who actually did her whole wardrobe for this because they they just love working with each other. She had exactly what Givenchy wanted. Givenchy could provide the kind of wardrobe she wanted. So, you know, in all of their films, Givenchy gave them actually great rates on her wardrobe to to fill in the movies because you know, he figured people are going to see Audrey Hepburn in his clothes and want to buy his clothes to look like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> and uh, part of the reason that, that was that, probably a very good campaign on his part. It, yeah, it, it worked out well. And part of the reason that it was so hard to find someone the figure he looked for, I mean, Hepburn was also raised in utter poverty. And, you know, she was in occupied Europe during the war and was malnourished through puberty. So she never actually fully developed. Well, what I read about Audrey Hepburn was she actually came from affluence and lost everything during the occupation. Yeah. So she, she lived on both sides of that fence. But, yeah, yeah I, mean, I she guess was... the slight figure would be more due to the, uh, <laughs> the occupation and what was going on. Yeah, so when you get these two together, so they both you know come over from Europe, they've got that. You've got Stanley Donan directing, who was a versatile director, i say he's probably best known for his work co-directing Singing in the Rain mm -hmm. which I don't think we should get into too much here because that's a movie Yeah, if we open that can of worms we're just going to have a whole other episode of the podcast embedded in the middle of this podcast <laughs> Singing in the Rain needs an episode of its own at some point if it's going to be discussed at all I would right. say it's going so, to get its own episode at some point okay um but yeah, so Grant and Hepburn, they, they got along well on stage and off stage because of their histories. And they they got it. Like, I mean, Cary Grant's past followed him to some degree. Um, you mentioned Arsenic and Old Lace. If you pay very close attention to the tombstones in Arsenic and Old Lace, the names on the tombstones are the birth names of people in Hollywood who took on stage names. 
So at one point, Cary Grant actually sits on the tombstone that says Archibald Leach. But yeah, so these are these two, and they apparently they hit it off on and off screen, and they just had that perfect dynamic and the banter that Peter Stone had for them. Yeah, Peter they Stone had a great deal of chemistry between them in this movie. Um, what I what I read, you know, and I've been familiar with Cary Grant for years, but I didn't read too much on his biography before now. Uh, and what I had read was. Uh, as far as the homosexual rumors, uh, that's exactly what they are, rumors, because they never were, they were never fully verified or uh, thrown out. Uh, the, the big one that they try to uh, lean on is that he uh, and Randolph Scott apparently were roommates for quite a while, and they claim that there was a gay relationship between the two, but that's never been verified to any great extent. Uh, and, and he vehemently denied it. So, who knows? Um, but he, having grown up in poverty, as as you mentioned, was very, very particular about not giving off an air of poverty. He never wanted to give off a low-class appearance. So he studied the behavior of people who grew up in high society and learned how to behave that way and to fit in with that crowd uh, and also was a was very, very conscious of his wardrobe choices for that reason as well. So he, he always wanted to present as, you know, a more sophisticated person from a more high-class upbringing. And frankly, having seen quite a few movies he was in, I think he did a damn good job of doing that. He did. and it, I mean, you talk about his wardrobe. Um, I listened to the commentary in the Criterion edition, which had Stanley Donen and Peter Stone as the voices. So they got... The, the screenwriter Mark Bem is the other credited writer but Stone just asked Bem to help him iron out a few of the plot wrinkles because he says you know Bem was just a, an old friend of his from college who had like story structure absolutely nailed knew it backwards forwards and sideways so for the complex mystery he said hey does it all make sense so he you know he had some input which is why he shares credit but the final screenplay was Stone and Stone and Donan were talking about how like they, they couldn't believe Cary Grant. I mean, yeah, he always he made sure he was always in a suit, but they were rarely tailored suits. He could buy a suit off the rack, and just knew how to wear it. So they said like that. That's part of what they did. It's most stars in that with his stature would have a particular designer producing their wardrobe and particular hairstylist coming with them, and. Donald was with him one day when they're just walking down the street and there was a, a barber shop there that had a you know an opening and Grant said, Okay, I need a haircut, hang on. And Don's going, What are you doing? It's gotta be right, it's gotta be and Grant's like, No, 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 trust me. Because he had a hairstyle that no stylist really can get wrong. It was a simple, straightforward hairstyle. He said you can get it cut anywhere and it would look good. So he he planned his life so not just like he was in a suit but knew how to wear the suit to give the impression that it was a tailored suit when it was more just how he knew how to carry himself he could find an off the rack suit that gave that impression and I guess that was the I, I don't want to say that he was acting high society uh, I prefer to think of it more that he just learned how to be high society uh, but I guess that's mm -hmm. the actor in him that he was able to study the behavioral aspects of people and then adopt them into his own lifestyle which is, is fascinating when you think about it. You, I, I would imagine if you had some sort of psychologist uh, on a podcast like this, he could probably go on for hours about 
you know what how, what that reflects on his personality and his uh, you know mental well-being. Well, yeah, I th- perhaps the most telling statement was that there was one interviewer, you know, who said every man wants to be Cary Grant, and his response was, "So do I." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the old you know the old comment that I always use that you know James Bond. Every, it, every man wants to be him. Every woman wants to be with him. Yeah. So, and, and Cary Grant's one of the people who that, that comment probably fits. Uh, again, you know, you, like you said, uh, or as we said, that there was a tremendous uh, chemistry between the two leads in the movie. And probably a lot of that is the acting, and a lot of that is the screenplay as well. They do have a very well-written repartee between them. And I mm-hmm. think that goes a long way towards making this movie entertaining. And again, as... I viewed it, you needed to get through that first act, basically what I read for the listeners, uh, in order to get to the point where you start seeing that chemistry and feeling that chemistry and start being interested in it, uh, and start rooting for a hero or heroes, depending on how you view this movie. Yeah, I would say the first five minutes I found worked really well. When you've got you know their initial meeting between Peter Joshua and Regina Lampert, and you know, with the, oh, I'm sorry, I know quite a lot of people already, and I couldn't possibly get to know anyone else until one of them dies, that sort of thing, which is actually pretty telling, because she doesn't start to get to know new people until people she already knows die, <laughs> right? She gets to know Peter Joshua because she finds out, yeah, her husband's dead. I mean, technically, the film opens with him getting thrown off a train, which was you a very no difficult idea shot to get. At that point. It's like, what? No. What, what, is, what is that scene? Yeah, and it it was a challenging shot to get because they didn't have the budget to hire a train. So they just knew, okay, we need the, the camera over here to see this piece, and then when you pan over, the train's got to be right there. So they just learned the train schedule and had that camera set up in time to pull that shot off when a train just came through regularly. Um, yeah, So that, you know, that's part of how the, this got put together. So I think we get that that really great repartee between them. And then the other MGM tie-in is the funeral scene, which was inspired by Louis B. Mayer's predictions about his own funeral, some of which actually came true in 1957 when when he passed away. But he's the second M in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM. And when the studio was founded, he and Goldwyn decided to play good cop, bad cop, and Mayer was always the bad cop. So... He was a hated man publicly. Privately, you find out things like, you know, he didn't know if Cary Grant was gay or straight. And he had a you know, a couple male leads that he wasn't sure about. So there's rumors that Cary Grant and another male lead were involved. Publicly, they were each interested in two other women. There's also rumors that those women were involved with each other. And Louis B. Mayer arranged for them to, you know, not just for them to get married but he had the two couples living in a studio duplex with internal doors between them so that whoever was in that house could sleep with whoever they wanted every night and who cares right so which, and that was orchestra- a pretty uh, a pretty forward way of thinking back in those days it was so you know louis b Mayer publicly was a horrible man but you find out he was responsible for these decisions behind the scenes that he just didn't take public credit for so he could keep that bad cop persona but he predicted that when he died he would have the most attended funeral in hollywood history which 
was actually true at the time it happened. But he said that was because people were going to be showing up to, you know, he actually said, you know, put mirrors under his nose and poke him with pins and make sure he's actually dead. Which, you know, was... Trying to get in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) That's part of the inspiration there was that, you know, the stories about that one. You know, but, you know, Charlie being poked and prodded by these guys to make sure he's really dead. Of course, the funeral scene here is not the most attended. It's... uh... It's Audrey Hepburn, her friend, and then the three three uh, hoodlums come in one by one just kind of to, to check to see if he's dead and move on. And that's yeah. about it. That's uh, yeah. the funeral. Yeah, and the police inspector who suspects that Regina Lampert or Reggie knows more than she's letting on. And, you know, they think he's being nice and stoic and respectful in the back row when, you know, because he's sitting there quietly with his head down when he's actually clipping his nails. Mm. <laughs> So now this this is also, uh, the movie was, well, I mean, I, you know what, I was going to move on to something else, but I'd rather talk a little bit more about the cast. Uh, yeah. And I think it's worth talking about the three hoodlums, who are uh, George Kennedy, a uh, very, I don't know, just an interesting look for George Kennedy, because he's got the receding hairline, which he did not have in later years, which I assume meant he wore to pay in later years, uh, James Coburn and Ned Glass, and... I think George Kennedy and James Coburn, people just know by name. Ned Glass is one of the oh that guy actors. You don't know him by name, but when you see him, you know you've seen him a hundred times. Yeah, uh, I would say the most famous role he ever played was probably uh, when he was the candy store owner in West Side Story. Uh, but yeah, I, but he's I'm, been in so much. <laughs> yeah, IMDb has two hundred and twenty six credits for him. And his top four are Doc in West Side Story, uh, Leopold W. Gideon in Charade, Doc Schindler in The Fortune Cookie, and Sid Flubish in Save the Tiger. But, I mean, I'm seeing guest spots on Trapper John M.D., on Barney Miller, on Chips, Chico and the Man, Beretta, Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, he, he passed away at age 78 in 1984, and his last credited role was a guest spot on Kenny and Lacey in 1982. Right? You can look at this. I'm just looking at this. If, you, if you're if you a mystery fan, as I suspect people who watch Charade are, pick a mystery series that ran weekly in the 70s or 80s, and you've probably seen him once or twice guest Oh, I think you could also pick almost every any sitcom during that time as well, and he probably appeared at some point. Yeah. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> I, I, I can pretty much guarantee anybody who was watching TVs and movies during that era, if you see him, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who that guy is. Yeah. Uh, James Coburn was typically entertaining in a similar way to the way he is in almost every movie he's in. Uh, like I said, I found myself particularly riveted by George Kennedy for some reason. I think it was that he had a different look about him. Uh mm-hmm. Of, of the three, he was the most vicious. Yeah. At least that's that's how I saw him. Uh, and and he, he was entertaining in his own way, too, because he, he also seemed of the three to be the dumbest. Uh, so he would let himself kind of get into situations. Uh, but again, uh, I, I don't want to give away too much of what goes on with them all. But there's a lot of interplay between those three and Cary Grant and those three and Audrey Hepburn uh, as the movie goes on. And uh, the mystery deepens pretty much with every interaction that they have. 
and yeah. I, I don't know about you, and I don't. Again, we, we don't want to give away anything, but uh, I did not have the mystery completely fi- uh, figured out as I was watching it. But ultimately, I kind of suspected where we were going to go, and we went where I thought we were going. Yeah, the uh, I I had figured out where and when they needed to be to solve the mystery, but didn't have the solution until they handed it to us. Like, like I, I figured it out as the characters started to figure it out. After the, the, you know, after the two main leads and the three supporting actors, I guess Walter Matthau's the next significant role. He's really the only other remaining significant role. Other people play bit parts, but nobody else is particularly significant. Uh, and as I said, yeah. without talking too much about what goes on, he seemed like a strange choice to me, more because I know Walter Matthau more as a comic actor than a serious actor. I know he's had serious roles, but I Mm -hmm. generally don't see him that way. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I I see him as more of a blustering uh, loudmouth. And here he's, you know, he's presented to us as as the uh, CIA inspector. And it just, it's hard to see him and picture that for me. Yeah, I, he's not like a Robert Williams or a Tom Hanks that has had, you know, resounding success both in comedy and drama. He, this is a character that, that could have been played very straight and played for drama, but because this does have a lot more comedy than most thrillers did... I, I could accept him in the context of this film because he was being a little bit goofy with like, you know, the sloppy way he was eating, and and stuff like that. Like he, he, there is a lot of suspense here, and there are serious stakes, and it does build to that, but it it does also deliberately try to have lights. So you can you keep things light so you can go in and have fun, and that's why I've, I figured they went with that to, you know, to have a little bit of that comic relief because it is. You know, it, it's hard to see Walter Matthau, because, like you said, he's he's not incapable of drama, but he's just such a phenomenal comedian that, it, yeah, and he says like he's just funny, and there's sometimes there's things he can't do about it. He asks to eat because he says he's funny when he eats, and he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he warned them like there is a scene where he runs, and it's not a comedic scene, but he's saying like you got to be careful how you shoot me because I look funny when I run, and there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, that's so. the, and, and and yes, he did. <laughs> I agree with that. You know, I, I I liken it some in some ways, and it's it's a much more comic actor thing. But like when Bill Murray did the Razor's Edge. And I was watching that, and it's very, it was very hard for me to watch his delivery and not see it as comedic, even though it was not a comedic role. Yeah. Your Tom Hanks, I can accept in drama, comedy, whatever, and I don't think he carries a stigma with him. Uh, you mentioned Robin Williams. I know he did some quality dramatic roles, but he was always a comedian first and foremost to me, so I would put him more closely to Walter Matthau uh, in that, you know, yes, I know he can do drama, but I'm going to expect comedy from him first, and he's going to have to kind of get by that before I can accept him as a dramatic actor. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, Robin Williams, he was always, 
if I saw Robert Williams on the cast list, I would assume it's comedy unless I was told otherwise, even after he got Oscar nominations for things like Awakening and, you know, Dead Poet Society and, you know, major dramatic roles proved he could do it, but I still kind of assumed he was going to be in a comedy until proven otherwise, whereas Tom Hanks, when I found out he was in Philadelphia, it was really, but then, you know, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, after that, it's like, okay, you know, whatever well, I think he's Tom in, Hanks, he will deliver, and it could be anything. Yeah, I think Tom Hanks kind of got roped into the comedic aspect of things just because his first big break was being on a sitcom in Bosom Buddies and being a comic actor in that. Then his first movie roles, because of that, were comedies. And that's where everybody saw him. But I, I, I suspect he didn't go into his acting career saying, I want to be a comedian. I, I suspect he wanted to do drama all along, you know, and, and have a well-rounded career, but kind of got typecast initially as a comedian and then had to show that he had the chops to go beyond that. And when he did, he took on enough serious roles and he was accepted critically enough that he was no longer thought of as a comedic actor, although he couldn't, you know, was known he could do comedy. Yeah. If that makes sense, the way I'm saying that. Yeah, because his comedies were... He, audiences appreciated his comedies more than critics did, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I know uh, movies like Splash or The Money Pit, uh, I don't yeah. think were as critically well accepted as uh, what I hear from people who watch them and love them. Yeah, like there's The Burbs and Joe vs. the Volcano both made a lot of money. They did not walk away with any Oscar nominations that I'm aware of. And I know uh, Shag would be a the first one to tell you Joe versus the Volcano is a, you know, by, his, by his estimation should be an Oscar worthy performance okay so uh, moving off the cast a little bit uh, the movie was fairly well received for its score and the soundtrack in general mm -hmm. and I have to tell you when I listened to it I tried to pay a little bit more attention to that than I normally do and I don't know. I thought it was a little. Uh, some so I thought some of the music choices were a little overly obvious. Uh, just just seemed uh, to stand out a little more than they should. I've always kind of felt that that a good soundtrack, even one of the best ones. You know, if you take something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first time you see that movie, you shouldn't walk out saying dun 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 because. You should have been so engrossed in the movie that the, mu the music should have just added to it without you even realizing it. And it isn't until you get multiple viewings that that music should really stand out to you. Uh, this, and again, I was trying to pay attention to it, but I thought some of the music choices seemed a little bit overly obtrusive to me. And I'm curious if you had a similar thought. I was actually thinking about it, partly because I appreciate scores, but I paid more attention to it this time because I know that you know, if we're doing Is It Jaws, we're going to be talking about the score for the film. Because that, that is something that you do pay a lot of attention to. And I was actually thinking of, you know, kind of like a Jaws scale for movie scores, where Jaws 1 is something that works both in the context of the movie and you could, you know, go by the album and just listen to it separately. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like, you know, Jaws 2 would be something that works for the movie, but not necessarily as a standalone album. Jaws 3 is, yeah, just 
get the job done, nothing special, nothing really terrible, and Jaws 4 is just like a bad score. And listening to this, overall, I would put it at a Jaws 2. I mean, there are some moments where it lacks subtlety, but I, I would say it works in the context of the film, but I don't see myself buying the album and listening to it just for the sake of listening. See, and again, I go to the description of the movie where it's kind of described as a romantic comedy and a mystery. As a yeah. romantic comedy, I felt the score was more fitting because you can have a more, a less subtle soundtrack in a romantic comedy. In a mystery, I want the, the music to be a little bit more in the background and just kind of pull you along mm-hmm. with the movie and not necessarily make you think, hey, they're playing music here. Uh, and maybe that's the problem is because I, watching this, I saw it more as a suspense mystery than a romantic comedy. So yeah. maybe the, the music is more suited to the view, you know, to the uh, viewing of it that I did not have. Yeah, it could be a, a case of, yeah, coming in, you know, you, you were more interested in one element of the film, whereas Mancini may have just been more interested in the other. Yeah, and, that's, and that's what I'm that thinking way. is exactly the case. Uh, I'm, I was more interested in it, no question about it at all. My greatest thought going into this was people kept saying this is like a Hitchcock movie. So I wanted a Hitchcock movie out of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think uh, it was as deftly directed as a Hitchcock movie. Uh, and that's not necessarily an insult. You know, saying that you're not one of the greatest directors of all time isn't yeah. necessarily an insult. Uh, but I, I think Hitchcock would have more subtlety in some of the transitions that he would make or even some of the scenes where you'd have uh, certain angles that were meant to project certain story messages uh, that I didn't see in here. Uh, and and that made I think that's what made that first act move a little bit more slowly for me. I think Hitchcock would have had that first act a little bit more. It would have been snapping a little bit more and it would have moved quicker, a little quicker. Yeah, that's quite possible because, like, I mean, Stanley Donen is a good director, and he's a versatile director because he has done good work in multiple genres. I would say he did good work here, but not great work. I mean, Hitchcock is one of my all, three all-time favorite directors. So saying, yeah, you're not as good as Hitchcock is like, okay, you're in the other ninety-nine point eight percent of the population. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it's it's not necessarily a damning statement to say it's not as good as Hitchcock. Uh, but, and, and Stanley Donen, uh, I mean, he, he had a lengthy career because he, just looking at his directorial credits, which is only 32 of them, but he went as late as doing a video documentary of Lionel Richie doing Dancing on the Ceiling uh, in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did an episode of Moonlighting back in 1986. You know, he, he, his career went on for quite a while. Uh, this one kind of fell right in the middle uh, as far as the, the, the number of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started, it looks like, in 1949 and went as late as 2003. Uh, with the most significant one, as you said, was uh, Singing in the Rain. Uh, just looking on the town, another musical one. Uh, seven Brights for Seven Brothers, Funny Face. The Pajama Game. You know, a lot of musicals. Damn Yankees. Uh, yeah. Once so, More I mean, With he, Feeling, which in, was the inspiration for the Buffy musical episode of the same name. Always taking the name for that. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, when he did work on, on Moonlighting, it says he did a musical number. Yeah, he also did... Um, Indiscreet was one of his non-musical ones, and it's actually Indiscreet and Kiss Them For Me are the two I'm going to draw attention to, because when when Peter Stone first wrote the screenplay, he shopped it around to all the studios. They all said no. And then, I think it was Chatelaine Magazine, where he brought it out in sort of a serialized format, and it was a huge hit there, and that's when the studios came asking to do it. And he could basically pick who was going to to adapt his film and it was the work in Indiscreet and Kiss Them For Me that that he knew Stanley Donan's work from like he knew Stanley Donan's work from those two and said okay this is a guy who can do the comedy and he could do the drama that's the guy I want so really Peter Stone chose Donan Donan threw his name in the hat along with like seven or eight other people and it was Peter Stone said okay if you want to make this work that's the guy I'm working with and that's, I mean, the project actually started at MGM that way. And then, like I said, Cary Grant and Andre Hepburn backed out, and that's where they moved to Universal, and they were going to have Beattie and Dunaway come in. But then Stone did the rewrite, and Grant came back, and MGM actually tried suing them, saying, oh, you lied to us just to, to jump studios to get a better deal, when it was just coincidental timing. Interesting. So uh, I'm just thinking, like, the aspect of this movie that does fall in with the Hitchcock or Hitchcockian themes, and I think what throws me off a little bit is that it's Audrey Hepburn that has the Hitchcockian themes, not mm-hmm. Cary Grant. And to see Cary Grant out of that element, just, I guess it's more similar to him in Notorious, where he wasn't the innocent man on the run and, and Ingrid Bergman was the innocent one on the run. This is Audrey Hepburn as the innocent one, and she's got basically everybody except for Cary Grant's character who's accusing her of knowing more than she knows and coming after her for something that she doesn't understand what it is. So that is very Hitchcocky, and then, you know, if you want to see Cary Grant in that role, just watch North by Northwest. Uh, Um, Or just watch North by Northwest anyway. Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, But, you know, so every, everybody else is coming after her except for Cary Grant, and she's never truly sure whether or not she can trust Cary Grant because she keeps learning things where he's a little deceptive to her. And I'm going to leave it at that again because I don't want to give away too much of the plot. But I think that's where this is Hitchcockian in its presentation. Yeah, I would say, say so because that's that standard Hitchcock theme of the average everyday person totally innocent getting sucked in and pulled into a totally different world and they just don't know how to cope and that was North by Northwest that was to a degree strangers on a train that was clearly the wrong man you know the 39 steps mm-hmm. it, notorious yeah um, uh, uh, Cary Grant's role in Suspicion is probably closer to his role in charade than any other Hitchcock film, but okay, I was going with Notorious, but I, I could see where you thought where you get that from. Yeah, some of them maybe just the the tone because Suspicion is definitely more comedic than Notorious is. Yes, I agree with that as well. Uh, any other aspect of this that stands out to you? 
those were the main ones. That and the fact that a lot of the locations were actually shot, like some of these scenes were shot on location. You know, the 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 climax goes from one physical location to another, and those are both filmed on site. Those two locations really are side by side in real life, and that was part of what Peter Stone already was familiar with when he structured the screenplay and pulled it off. And again, I don't want to get into too much detail there, aside from the fact that uh, one of those locations had columns. They actually had to build two fake columns to take the bullet holes and to put between things on on screen <laughs> to obscure what was going on. Okay, but, so then, that said, I guess yeah. we get to the ultimate question of our show. And that is... Is this Jaws? And let me give the Jaws scale because I always have to give the Jaws scale. <laughs> Jaws 1, a classic movie. Uh, very few flaws, if any. Jaws 2, excellent movie, worthy of rewatching, uh, solid, just not quite at that classic level. Jaws 3, good movie, but nothing particularly special. Jaws 4 is a bad movie. And again, that is not my ratings of the Jaws movies. If you want to hear those, go listen to our Jaws episode from, I believe it was episode two of the show. Uh, but Blaine, where does this fall on the Jaws scale? Uh, for me, this is something I was I was waffling on when we when I suggested this, when we were going to it. It's, I was trying to decide if it was a Jaws 1 or 2, and I think in the end I am landing on Jaws 1. It is not a perfect film, but the flaws do not in any way prevent me from enjoying the film every time I've watched it. Interesting, interesting. I, I, uh, I actually fell a decent amount lower than that. Uh, I still think this was a very worthwhile movie to watch. Let me make that clear before I give uh, my rating. Uh, I, I think I, it was very... Again, once I got past that first act, I was very entertained by it, and I was uh, pretty much riveted to my screen and enjoying every minute of it. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, but that first act was a little slow moving to me. I think it could have been tightened up and directed a little sharper. Again, maybe on a repeated viewing it might, might uh, I might see it a little differently. But uh, I did think that was a little slow. Uh, I could see seeing this again without any problem at all. It's not like, you know, okay, I saw it once and it's done. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give it as a Jaws 2, but it wasn't even really a high Jaws 2 for me. It was just kind of right in the middle of that. Uh, you know, good movie, enjoyable, worthy of repeated viewings, but not at the classic level, as far as I'm concerned. So okay. that, that's where I landed on it. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, interested that you found it to be a, you know, a Jaws level, which, again, yeah. I don't criticize anybody's opinion ever. Yeah, and some of that may be because... I mean, this is your first viewing, and I find actually every time I watch it, I enjoy it more. So, I mean, had had we done this after the first time I viewed it, I probably would have landed on the higher end of Jaws 2, but still in the Jaws 2 range. Okay, so, so that's something to keep in mind. Again, yeah. I am very much recommending that if you haven't seen this and you have the opportunity, and everybody has the opportunity because it's available on YouTube, uh, I would mm -hmm. say go ahead and watch it. Uh, I think it's it's very worthwhile to watch. And perhaps when I do end up watching it a second time eventually, maybe my rating might go up. Uh, I, I also should just mention, we, did, we didn't touch on it all. Apparently the budget for this 
on uh, IMDb is four, uh, estimated at $4 million, which is a fairly high budget for that era, 1963. It, it is. Uh, and, wow. and the American gross was uh, basically $13.5 million. So it was, a, it was a success financially. Yeah, it was. Okay. That's something I had actually deliberately avoided looking at those numbers because... You thought I was going to quiz you? Yeah, that's the way you usually <laughs> run. So, Yeah, I, I usually do, but for some reason yeah. uh, today I just glossed over that. Yeah, I, I was actually going to estimate about three and a half uh, million for the budget just because contemporary Hitchcock's were usually about two and a half to three million, but I do know from listening to the commentaries, they were totally rained out at one of their locations. So they had to break down the sets, ship them cross country, and build them inside a warehouse and reshoot and do things like this on location in Europe that would have grossly driven up the costs. So that's why I was going to say, yeah, you know, it would have been three million if it was done in the states as a Hitchcock film, but I was going to go three point five, and probably estimate about fifty million for the box office because I know North by Northwest is Cary Grant's most successful film with about twenty two million. Most Hitchcock films like this in that era would have been probably about eighteen to nineteen million, but at the time, Hitchcock was the first director where just putting saying yeah, it's directed by Hitchcock, would make a substantial difference in the box office. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I definitely so, think so. So would it just, like, cut back from that? I Yeah. I would have expected it, like I said, about more like $15 million, not the 13 and change. I think your numbers excited. would have been close enough that I would have been impressed. Okay. Now, just, uh, just as, as a, uh, an aside, I do remember uh, the tail, ends, tail end of Alfred Hitchcock. I remember... Uh, Frenzy coming out. I remember Family Plot coming out, uh, and I do remember what his reputation was at the time. And it was pretty much, uh, you know, it's a Hitchcock movie. It's worth seeing. It was it was, it was almost uh, akin to what you get now with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I would agree with that because it's also at the point where, well, actually, Spielberg has gotten a little more critical acclaim with the Oscar wins and whatnot. Hitchcock's career. I don't think he was ever... I know he never won the Best Director Oscar. I don't believe he was ever nominated. And only one of his films ever won Best Picture. That was Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in that regard, I think he was... Uh, he was he was appreciated in his time. He wasn't awarded or rewarded in his time. Yeah, I think some of that we can... I don't know if we want to get into this tangent, but I do find that the Academy Awards... When, when you're looking at them, in, in some ways, you get rewarded for surprising them and exceeding their expectations. So when you get someone who's consistently good like Hitchcock, it's not as much of a surprise. So you don't have that same, wow, I wasn't expecting that feeling when you walk out of the theater. Like Charade, I wasn't expecting the director of Singing in the Rain to come out with a movie like this. Yeah, well, that's, that's, you know, I, I hadn't realized when I was watching it. I hadn't paid attention yet. I watched the movie, then I did my research on it. Because I always want to watch it, if I can, as cleanly as possible. So I didn't even know what the directing pedigree was. But if I knew that going in, I would not have gotten what I expected. Yeah, because this is... It's, there's, it's generally don't new his musicals, but... 
looking at his credits, Singing in the Rain was his fourth director directorial work. And Singing in the Rain is often re- regarded as probably the best of the classic musicals. I, I, like I said, I firmly believe it deserves its own episode. So I'm not going to get into where I would rank Singing in the Rain. Um, aside from, well, I, I will tease that. Yeah, I do think it's the best of the classic musicals, but I have issues with the musical genre, so I won't reveal whether any musical is even capable of being a Jaws one level. Well, as, as we as we walk away slowly yeah. from this episode, I'm thinking uh, I would like to. We we have a list of several movies that we plan to actually talk about together, but I probably would like to add to that list North by Northwest and Singing in the Rain. Okay. So somewhere down the road, neither neither of those will require a first viewing from me, though. <laughs> unlike this one. Okay. Okay. So before we walk away from this. Uh, Blaine, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing now? Because I think it changes as time goes on. Uh, it does, yeah. I, everything that I do is released through Bureau42.com. And I've, I've got a few things on the go. I've got an X-Files retrospective series that I'm doing bi-weekly that's still going to be running when this comes out. I know you, you like to have a few months lead time, but I'm about to record an episode from the second half of season five in what is about to become an 11 season series plus two movies so that so I, I should you, you, your your podcast should outlast my delay in postings I, I should certainly hope so uh, and then I've got a, a couple other projects I've got make me watch it where once a month the listeners will basically dictate through voting which movie I'm going to watch next because I own about 800 movies I haven't gotten around to watching yet Partly because, as I said, I enjoy bad movies, so I've got several box sets uh, that I bu- spent 10 bucks each on that have 50 public domain movies in them. Uh, and then I've got a couple other things on the go. Uh, comic Book Physics is wrapping up in a few days, so that will be done, but still available for download by the time you can hear this, where I just basically teach physics in the context of comic books. And then there's another project coming up well there's a couple projects coming up but they haven't been officially announced yet I've only got like four or five episodes of each recorded and in the can and I want more lead time than that so but both will have myself and the same co-host every week one's a comic book project podcast one is a movie project podcast and yep and uh, the comic book one features a regular co-host who has already appeared on Is It Jaws? That's interesting. Yes. I could speculate, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna avoid speculation. Do you care to re- reveal it, or would you rather just let that be uh, unknown for now? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll let that go unknown for now, because we want to have a few more in the can. Uh, the movie podcast, I, that co-host has not yet appeared on Is It Jaws, but he is active in the Two True Freaks and Is It Jaws Facebook pages. So. Well, then he could find his way in here at some point. It's very possible. He might be on the list of people <laughs> who I plan to have on already, for all I know. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk offline, because if he's not, maybe you should add him. Okay. In the meanwhile, uh, before we do that, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on, and I enjoyed 
having time to discuss a movie with you again, and I look forward to the next time you come on. Uh, And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, and thanks for having me back. Does he belong to you? Mm, It's hers. Where'd you find him, robbing a bank? He was throwing snowballs at Baron Rothschild. Oh, thank you. Do we know each other? Why, do you think we're going to? I don't know. How would I know? Because I already know an awful lot of people, and until one of them dies, I couldn't possibly meet anyone else. Hmm. Well, if anyone goes on the critical list, let me know. Mm. Quitter. Uh-huh. You give up awfully easily, don't you? Bien, Jean-Louis, let us make a walk. I've never seen a Rothschild before. <laughs> Clever fellow. Almost missed me. Thank you. You're blocking my view. Oh, uh, oh. Which view would you prefer? The one you're blocking. It's my last chance. I'm flying back to Paris this afternoon. What's your name? Peter Joshua. Oh, mine's Regina Lampert. Is there a Mr. Lampert? Yes. Good for you. No, it isn't. I'm getting a divorce. Please, not on my account. Oh, no. I see. I don't really love him. Well, at least you're honest. Mm. Is there a Mrs. Joshua? Yes, but we're divorced. Oh, that wasn't a proposal. I'm just curious. Is your husband with you? Oh, no, Charles is never with me. What do people call you, Pete? Mr. Joshua. I've enjoyed talking with you. Now you're angry. No, no, I'm not angry. I just have a lot of packing to do. I'm going back to Paris, too. Well, wasn't it Shakespeare who said when strangers do meet in far-off lands, they should ere long see each other again? Shakespeare never said that. How do you know? It's terrible. You just made it up. Well, it sounds right. You going to call me? Are you in the book? Well, Charles is. Is there only one Charles Lampert? Hmm. Lord, I hope so. Oh.